Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. It is my absolute pleasure today to have Sri Milinda Moragoda uh, on the podcast. Milinda Ji is a Sri Lankan politician who is currently serving as the 22nd High Commissioner to India. He has had a decade-long political career. Uh, if people don't know, I would like to remind them that he was one of the principal government negotiators in the peace talks in 2002 to 2004. He has been a cabinet minister over there for economic reform, science and technology, tourism, justice and law reform in Sri Lanka. Sir, thank you very much for coming. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's a privilege, Pasha. Thank you for inviting me. So you know, on a lighter note, sir, we have to start with this. The Asia Cup 2023 is on, sir. Can you do something about the rains in Sri Lanka? We want I cricket. Think, <laughs> I think you've got to do something about it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh so so as of now as we are talking to each other you know india and nepal i, I think the match has started again you know, it's so funny when i announced i was talking to you i got at least 5 6 emails immediately saying can you ask sir please do something about the rains we full cricket matches <laughs> i think there are so many people praying something must happen i hope so so sir maybe we can start a little bit uh, from the historical perspective of our relationship with sri lanka i i noticed you know i was listening re-listening to your uh, your uh, to your podcast with smita the ani podcast by the way i absolutely loved it in the ani podcast uh, throughout the interview you know you, you kept on insisting on we are tied culturally and civilizationally you you gave a lot of emphasis on that aspect and maybe we can start from there so so for an average, because i am in canada right now there is a very big uh, sri lankan contingent in um, in canada right so i i when i used to study here also i used to meet a lot of sri lankans from uh, from uh from both sides not just uh, tamil speaking but even sinhalese uh, speaking sri lankans obviously you you end up meeting a lot more tamil speaking sri lankans but let's say you know in in areas like scarborough and stuff like that they, we 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 used to meet them all the time but um, i used to always find a level of comfort so so how is it from a sri lankan perspective like how do average sri lankans look at india because it's very important for indians to get that perspective too i think kosha that we on both sides i don't think we appreciate the civilizational links enough i mean that's my feeling maybe i'm speaking as a sri lankan it's a personal perspective of course and that's something i've tried to talk as, about as much as possible because if you look at let's look at the singhalese and the tamils the tamils obviously with the, the dravidian links the southern links that they have the connection with india and our tamil community we have north and the east we have a tamil community uh, then we also have in the hill country a tamil community who came at different times but uh, still that there is a connection to south india but the singhalese have a connection to north india that is often always missed i think that is from bengal coming through bengal coming through kalinga odisha now i've been traveling quite a lot i was out in kalinga in in uh, odisha for example there's a tremendous civilizational link because buddhism actually uh, king ashoka's son and daughter as you know brought the message of buddhism to sri lanka that came uh, took place from uh, kalinga that uh, from from odisha the, the port of odisha is where they, they believe they would have left and also the temp- the tooth relic which is our symbolic uh, the symbol of buddhism in sri lanka came from uh, from odisha as well so there is this connection 
and then our languages if you look at it tamil is more obviously spoken in in in, in tamil nadu it's a southern language uh, when it comes to sinhala which is the sinhalese language is basically sanskrit pali based and that is very often not understood or appreciated sometimes by both sides i find and in fact sinhala is in some ways and here i'm not going into a linguistic study but uh, closer to uh, Sanskrit and Pali, I think, than even Hindi is. Very often one can understand, uh, maybe use the straight Sanskrit words. So I think that is best. Then, of course, our oldest relationship is the Ramayana, of course, and, and the, the connection goes back there. Then we had more the relationship with the southern states, from the, with the Pandyans, the, the uh, Cholas, the, uh, and, and with especially, we, we, we talk about geopolitics, I always say, I mean, some of our geopolitics we dealt with at that time, and sometimes we fell in different sides of these battles. For example, many of our king, kings were aligning themselves with the Pandyans. So when the Pandyans and the Cholas clashed, uh, very often we ended up also being involved in those battles. And our first uh, prince, who we believe inhabited Sri Lanka, Prince Vijaya, we believe uh, married a Pandyan princess. So all these civilizational connections are there with the Sinhalese and with the Tamas. And then, of course, we have our own civilization and we are proud of our own identity. And, and uh, I think the Sinhalese and Tamas, we are proud of our own identity. And uh, that, that, that is also there. But the civilizational connection, the DNA connection, if you will, I think is very often not appreciated enough. The language connection between Sinhala and the Sanskrit connection also, I think, is not appreciated enough sometimes. You know, you, you mentioned DNA. So recently, there is a study that has come out. I, I don't know how many people know about it, but uh, this was recently published. In fact, I'm going to be doing a detailed podcast. I'm reading the paper as of now. But, you know, people don't realize because we're going to talk about a few of the conflicts in Sri Lankan society from an Indian perspective. But I think when this paper now that it has come out it was by the way it was a joint research by indian and sri lankan dna scientists by the way for the record both indian and sri lankan dna population geneticists were involved in it and uh, it shed light on the historical origins of ethnic groups in sri lanka and guess what uh, to the utter shock of the researchers the only place in the entire subcontinental or nowadays as it's called south asian region the entire region, the only place where the populations have completely intermingled from a genetic profile perspective, the Tamil-speaking and the Sinhalese-speaking people, they are only in one spot, that is Sri Lanka. So that shows genetically, in Sri Lanka at least, this population has intermingled for a long time and they are actually very similar genetically. But uh, obviously, uh, that I don't think so. A lot of people actually knew about it. And people assume that, uh, you know, the Tamil-speaking population of Sri Lanka and the Sinhalese-speaking population of, uh, you know, Sri Lanka, because there are so many cultural and linguistic differences in the two groups, and it has led to a lot of strife in the case of, you know, both communities, especially in, in the case of India from a, you know, Indian Tamil perspective, a lot of Tamil uh, grievances have given. But I don't think so. A lot of people know about the genetic similarities between the two. I mean, this paper was recently published. 
So I haven't seen it. I remember I've read about it, but uh, I would also like to study that more. I mean, clearly, I don't know. I mean, we, we, I think as societies, we like to focus on our differences and I don't think that's how we should be looking at this. We have to look at our similarities and I mean, ultimately, we, we are humanity. Civilizationally, we may be having differences, but if we cannot learn to get along, that means there is something really wrong with us because, I mean, we must be proud of our civilizations, proud of our languages, proud of who we are, identity-wise, but that should not be used, I think, to demonize others. And that's where, I think, not only in Sri Lanka, but the world over, we fail when we don't seem to appreciate that enough. So maybe this so, kind of study will help, actually, I think, to... Yeah, so, so maybe now we can talk about, uh, you know, uh, I want to discuss economics primarily too, but I, you know, uh, I would be accused if I did not ask you this question. So I have to ask you this question, you know, about the reconciliation between the, the Sinhalese and the Tamil uh, Sri Lankans and from the point of view of the 13th Amendment. Now, I know uh, the government as of now did try to do something about the 13th Amendment, but sir, why hasn't it passed till now? Because uh, as you know, it's a very sensitive subject for a lot of people in India too. So when can we assume or hope for some solid movement when it comes to the 13th Amendment? No, the president has placed a proposal before the parliament to implement, because the 13th Amendment is in the constitution. So it, it is there. It is in the implementation that there have been some debates. And uh, if one were to actually implement it, there has to be some kind of consensus in parliament. That is what the president is asking for, a consensus. And uh, the difference seems to be now what kind of police powers could be devolved. And that's where the debate is going on. Uh, and I mean, the I mean, I feel personally, if constitutions can create paradise in Sri Lanka, we are in paradise because we have been developing constitutions for the past 75 years. And uh, the, 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 I think we need to go beyond that. I mean, the war ended in 2009 and now we are in 2023. Uh, I think the democratic process has to somehow find a consensus. Unfortunately, you know, today's society, whether it is here in uh, Sri Lanka, in India, or in the West, or where, whichever country you are looking at, societies are highly polarized. And the challenge I think our leaderships have is to develop consensus in parliament. And if uh, and it has to, basically, there has to be by, and that is where this is stuck at. So, I mean, with, with this, uh, with, with the polarized nature of the polity, we have not been able to come to an understanding on a common platform for how power sharing should be, at least devolution would be followed. And also on development, sadly, because I find people who talk a lot about devolution sometimes have, uh, have failed to talk about development. They say that development has to await devolution. I don't agree with that because in the North, the war ended in 2009 and we, we, there has to be an effort to develop consensus on development plans as well, on economic plans. I think a lot of the politicians on both sides are hung up on constitutional issues. I sometimes quote Goethe from Faust, where he says at one stage, I think Mephistopheles says, 
theory is grey, my friend. Life is the tree of life is green. Uh, I feel a lot of the politicians are focusing on the grey and they're arguing on detail. We can start now implementing what is there. That is what the present president has put forward. And then, okay, we, it has to evolve. But unless we start thinking about people, because this is about human beings on the ground, it's not about politicians. I, I mean, I have been a politician, I have won elections, I have lost elections, and always I feel that we are too busy sometimes talking about our own problems rather than people's problems. So what I would think I'd like to see, I hope we will see, is that a consensus at some point. But pending that, a, 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 a willingness to start from where we are. That is what the, the proposals that are on the table. So, sir, but uh, about because you did mention because one of the sticking points over there is about how much power does the police and the security forces get, and uh, like I come from a very libertarian perspective, and uh, I I always uh, get very very when when I hear things. This is my personal opinion. I'm not giving you my, the opinion, nor am I representing the government of India in any way. I'm, the government may have a completely different view, but I, as an average citizen of India, I also get very very because. Because, you know, I have seen laws in India that are very draconian. And when I, I just get very wary when the state, whether it's Sri Lanka, whether it's India, whether it's any country for that matter, when the police or the security apparatus gets uh, that level of power, the citizenry should be worried. Uh, so so how, how would you address those issues then? See, I am also very much... I come from a libertarian perspective, and that is in the minority in our polity in Sri Lanka. I don't know how it is in India. It's an absolute minority, sir. So, I mean, we are dealing in a country in Sri Lanka. We, are, we have a 22 million population and one and a half million people working in the government. That includes the military, the government, one and a half million out of 22 million people. We have another 500,000 who are earning pensions from the government. And the pension is paid state from the budget. So we have 2 million people out of 25, 22 million. It's one of the highest ratios around. And we have to now start making government so smaller. You can call it right sizing. You can call it whatever you want. And it, it goes across the board. We, we frankly have too much government. And uh, I mean, I also believe that we have too many laws. We have a law for everything. We have institutions for everything. We have, I mean, the number of institutional frameworks for solving corruption we have by now. We should have no corruption at all. We have so many mechanisms. Uh, so, I mean, that's why I say if institutions can create paradise and constitutions can create paradise, that in Sri Lanka, we are in paradise. So we, we need a post-war. I mean, we had a 30-year war. And of course, the state becomes strong during wartime. There is no question about it. But that process of transforming the state, transforming uh, the, the public service has not happened. And one of the reasons, I mean, I'm sure you would want to talk about it at that time later, but it led to this crisis was also that because 80% of the revenues of the government was going on government service, salaries and pensions. So, I mean, it is an economic issue and it is also an issue when it comes to society because government officials are powerful. You have to go to government officials at every level for everything. You either need a politician or you need an official to get a problem solved. And, and uh, as a result, people 
I mean, there is a point at which people the, the, during last year when there was all this uh, when there was a the, 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 uh, the whole public uprising that took place uh, where the young people were calling for system change i don't think they quite knew what they were talking about when they said system to me system is to look at a more libertarian perspective because at least I feel in the Sri Lankan context, I, mean, I know there is a lot of debate on libertarianism, but I think in the Sri Lankan context, libertarianism is justified to something. We have to get the state off and get, get and get our more to the people. And that also, when it comes to uh, devolution, creating new structures where government is involved is not the solution. It's empowering people at the ground that we should be focusing on. Anyway, that's that's my spiel on this. You know, I, I, I remember watching the Australia versus Sri Lanka test. You see, I'm a cricket nut. So I, mm -hmm. you know, my political memories are also connected to cricket. So I remember watching, I think it was the first test match. I don't remember whether it was the last Australia tour to Sri Lanka where, where the series was tied 1-1. And I remember the cricket matches going on. And there are protests all over. These these very protests that you're talking about was smack bang when the Australian team was visiting Sri Lanka. I, I can never forget that site. And I was like, how can these two realities settle? Now, so I understand where you're coming from because in India too, there have been moments before 1990s. Thank goodness, you know, in 1990s, India corrected itself and we went into what I would not say a classical libertarian way, but more free market approach. Now in Sri Lanka, there is, was a very peculiar thing. A lot of people have discussed this. Sri Lanka, I don't know if what word should I use, sir, but, uh, and pardon me if you think I have used the wrong word. Sri Lanka and its obsession with organic farming. Like, what was that all about? Like, I don't understand what was that. Like, at a scale level, sir, for, you understand market economics as probably far better than I do. But like, at a market economics level, how was Sri Lanka even thinking of sustaining itself on the basis of organic farming? If I, I think was there ask. was a naive idealism there, which uh, what happened, I think, was during the COVID period. The nationalists in Sri Lanka felt that self-sufficiency was going to be the lesson from COVID. As you know, I mean, during the COVID time, many people had different views. I, of course, uh, advocated a different view on how we should get out of this. And uh, my foundation, I have a think tank, we were talking more of an outward-looking approach to coming out of COVID, restructuring the economy, making it more export-oriented. But there were others who argued that uh, we should be looking more inwards, we should be more self-sufficient. And along with it came this very strong move to organize organic farming. Uh, coming from the fact that there is, there is a view, a very strong view, and some of it I think maybe is, is correct, that our waters have been poisoned by some of the over-fertilization or chemical, chemical fertilizer. Uh, because Again, another result of our economic system was that some, at one point we were virtually giving fertilizer free to the farmers, not only to the smaller farmers, but even to the larger tea estates. And the tea estates are located on, on top of, as you know, in the hill country, and you put the chemical fertilizer in, it, it, uh, it seeps in. So there were studies connecting uh, the, the, uh, the chemical fertilizers to some of the illnesses that that some health issues that were coming up. 
so there was a group that believed strongly in this and that was the group that prevailed at that time and then obviously that was a mistake and it contributed to the farming community obviously being hurt badly uh, and uh, the, that in sri lanka like elsewhere there is a big polarization between the farms farming community the rural areas and the urban areas the urban areas where you saw most of the activity you are referring to the the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of the uprising if you will a lot of that was urban but when this when the when uh, the farming issue took place that was the president's base in fact uh, because the president the rajapaksa family base is basically rural uh, this was this led to this whole uprising but i i think i mean there was a naive idealism and, and, and the price is paid for that, obviously a big price. But there was a naive idealism in what happened. It was not a, it, it should not have happened. There's no doubt about it. It was a bad, bad decision. But sir, I, I, I sometimes wonder, like, I, I get in general, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, low-income countries, on average, and, and I include India in this. It's it's a psychological uh, mindset where um, they tend to be more towards socialistic policies and utopian ideas. And I don't know what's what what's the. I mean, I guess utopia is a human condition where everywhere. I mean, I'm in America also. I've signed uh, and Canada. I, I I hear utopian ideas, but but still, at its core, the Western world, what I have understood it is that they they have a like let's say a country like Canada, which is far more, you know, redistributionist in its approach. But when it comes to corporate tax rates and other things, Canada does have a very market-oriented approach and they try to, you know, maintain that approach. But how how does one uh, living in Sri Lanka, like I'm so refreshingly, uh, you know, surprised and happy to hear you actually criticize this idea. But then how does one do it in... in to a larger audience in Sri Lanka and and in in our societies in general, selling capitalism, selling market economics, selling the idea that progress is good. How does one go about it? Because everybody is looking for a revolution, as you said. I don't know. I have spent. Uh, I'm 16 nearly now, 59. I have spent most of my adult life trying to explain, or at least uh, to try to market that idea. I have. Won a couple of elections. I have lost several as well. Uh, but I think you have to keep trying because it, it is, I consider myself middle path. I mean, I have a libertarian outlook when it comes to how individuals should work within a society. When it comes to economics, I have a middle path. I, but in, on the Sri Lankan side, to get on the middle path, it's a huge shift to the right. So the moment you start talking middle path economics, people think that you are basically way off in our cultural context. And that is the price we paid because the economic crash was largely that. I mean, of course, there was a war, 30 years of war, the peak of our demographic dividend, we were fighting a war. And then our population growth was well managed. As you know, our social indicators, I mean, the investments we made in people, in our in human resources, education, health, uh, we are proud of, but we did not create capital. So as a consequence, the, what the British left us with when the British left, we, we, we provided rubber for the empire, we provided graphite for the empire during the war, uh, rubber and graphite, and of course, Steve was there as well. 
uh, after the British left, we basically squandered that. We did not create wealth. But we invested in human resources, but we just couldn't, uh, we didn't create entrepreneurship, we didn't create capital. And today, if you look at our economy, uh, I mean, I, I mean, keep repeating these numbers, but they're numbers I think we need to absorb. Uh, remittances, before COVID, remittances was number one. It still is $7.5 billion of remittances a year was our figure, mostly from the Middle East and some from even places like Canada and elsewhere where the, uh, the, the diaspora population is, but largely from the Middle East. Secondly, apparel. Uh, $5 billion worth of apparel, largely to the US market. Again, we add value of about 2 billion, 3 billion we import. Then we have tea at 2 billion. So all those tea estates really only produce $2 billion for us. And ICT, uh, the, 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 the software IT industry, about a billion dollars worth of expense. Tourism is the wild card in this. At the peak, we had about 4 billion in 2018. That was only one year. And then the Easter Sunday attacks took place in 2019. And uh, we have the COVID took place and it dropped. Tourism has never hit, realized its full potential. 4 billion was the highest we reached. Now for us to get out of this also, tourism becomes key. It is, it is that is the only, in the short term, that is the only industry that can take us to become a $10 billion industry. That's the only industry. But since independence, this has been our revenue stream. These have been our revenue stream. So it's a very, very fragile economy. And, and uh, we import our petroleum products. I mean, and, and basically, uh, they, 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 we fought a war right through the period when we should have been investing in uh, other streams of income. So at the end of the day, we have to start again now. And then that's the challenge. But uh, now that we are talking about the economy, and I want to keep this as the you know main focus, the, you know, again, from an Indian perspective, a lot has been discussed about uh, you know Sri Lanka's investment decisions. Let's say, for example, the two, and I know you know where I'm going to. So, but Hamandota uh, and uh, let's say the Colombo Beachfront, for example, these are uh, from an Indian perspective, uh, you know. If you ask me from an economic perspective, for, forget the geopolitics of it right now. Purely from an economic perspective, don't you think these are classic cases of overspending? And and um, and eventually, don't you think this overspending is going to harm the economy way more? And now uh, somebody from the left might say, "Is why did you have to do that? You could have done this and given us agricultural subsidies. I'm not defending the agricultural or the government uh, salary 80% bit. But how does man one manage the overspending in projects like the Colombo Beachfront or let's say Amandota for that example? Well, I think there are two uh, two different projects, although both have Chinese investment in it, as you pointed out. Uh, the Colombo Beachfront was basically a reclam land reclamation project. They reclaimed uh, land from the sea. And that project concept was around for a while, because uh, they, that, that is the high sort of market end of Colombo. And this idea of refilling land there that was around for a while. It was originally actually put forward by one of Sri Lanka's bigger conglomerates to do that. They, they put the proposal forward. Subsequently, the Chinese company, uh, China Harbor, came, came in and 
made the investment. Uh, and they filled the they filled the land. It was landfill. The idea was to convert it into a entertainment home uh, financial center. And uh, okay, it's it's a real estate play. Now, how it will work out, I, I can't tell you. But I mean, something it will work out okay, and it's only the future that will judge that. Uh, so that is that's an investment. There is no loan component involved in that. Ambantota is a different perspective altogether. In Sri Lanka, the north, the very north and the very south have been the poorest parts of the country. Uh, and north, the, the, the two sort of violent insurrections and terrorism in Sri Lanka took place in the north and, and from the south. As you know, the LTT and the tears of conflict and war there was in the north. And in the south, there have been more singular-based insurgent organizations have been active in the south as well. We have had two insurrections in the south in 1971 and 1987. So the port in Hambantota was also conceptualized, I think, in the 90s. And there was much discussion going on, logic being that the main sea lane is just south of Hambantota. It's very close to, very close, and that there could be some kind of a that we could draw benefit from from that and of course our main strategic port being Trincomalee that we could develop that into something more with India to make it into a, a hub for India India so government was looking out for investment for the of that time commercial investing in ports was just beginning in our region I mean today you have companies like Adani ports who do ports and so we have a number of port that has invested. Uh, the the uh, Hamadota port, the government was looking around for investors. There were no investors. Then finally, the government decided to do it on its own. And the China was willing to lend money. Now, at that period, the geopolitical uh, configuration was a little different. I mean, they have, they, that in the intensity with which uh, the geopolitics is being played out now was not there at that time. And so the government took a loan to develop the port. Then there was feeling that we should uh, restructure our debt. This was in the, let's say, 2015-16 period. And the Chinese came with an offer to say that they are willing to swap this in the lease to be swapped for they, they would for, for, for equity. So the, the Chinese put money in. It was a Chinese loan, which was, uh, which was uh, the Chinese gave us money to settle it or use the money the way we wanted. And they, they basically uh, uh, got a 99-year lease. So for the, as far as the government was concerned, what they were trying to do is to provide now whether projects of this nature really help backward areas and or not, we can have that debate. I understand that's, that's quite rational. I mean, whether you need a port and an airport to drive development. I, I mean, I'm open to that debate. I have my own views, but that, that we can have that. But that's what happened. Now, uh, the, the subsequently, when the whole strategic dimension came up, the geopolitical situation started to heat up. This this Sambantota uh, became a focal point. That, that is what happened. Now, at that time, I mean, the, the, the successive governments did talk to India also because Colombo port, which is our main port, is basically uh, services India. I mean, 80% of our business in Colombo port is, uh, is, is, as you know, it is, is uh, 
transshipment of that over the lowest nearly 75% is to India. And as you know, you don't have the deep water terminals in, in India, so we provide the deep water terminals and the, the ships, bigger ships come in and then smaller ships take the uh, cargo into India and then they come back to our deep water terminals. And when we started looking for partners, for when we started to privatize, because I think I was, I, I, I mean, I was glad that Sri Lanka started to allow private ports. We, we started quite early. I mean, the first investor uh, it was uh, was uh, Musk and uh, the, the uh, one of the, the Danish uh, combines who have invested there. Uh, uh, they they have a deep water terminal there. Uh, then subsequently, a Chinese deep water terminal is there. Now, uh, Adani Group is there, and that, that hopefully will keep growing because that's. But the the, uh, the commercial aspect of ports, we are now getting into it. Will Hambantota be successful commercially? Because it is more an industrial port; it is not a container port. Uh, without, is there going to be a hinterland possible? An industrial hinterland? China had been talking about creating an industrial park around the port. We have to see that. I mean, that 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 is still a work in progress. But in the middle of all this, now we have this strategic discussion. You know, can these ports be dual purpose? You know, these are, I mean, for us, these are new new areas. I mean, when you give somebody a port to use for containers, you don't think that it could, or for industrial port, you don't think other, there could be other uses for it. So for us also, it is a learning process. And to understand the geopolitics and to, you know, deal with the players, it is a learning process. But uh, very natural question. A lot of thinkers uh, and foreign policy geopolitical observers in India that, you know, I reached out to them when I, I told them when I'm talking to you, they said, like, please ask this question too, that eventually, how does Sri Lanka, because uh, the uh, the history around the world is that uh, you cannot avoid the Chinese debt trap. That, that these are the exact words they said. So, so how does a country like Sri Lanka think that they are going to, you know, buck the trend? Uh, because most of these people, and these are people who are sympathetic to Sri Lanka, very sympathetic to Sri Lanka, and they care about Sri Lanka of Indian origin. But they say, how does Sri Lanka intend to avoid then the Chinese debt trap? Because that is a very real danger and fear that a lot of well-wishers of Sri Lanka and India have. I think, I mean, I don't think we are in a Chinese debt trap. We are in a debt trap, and, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that. I mean, what happened, I mean, I'll go back to my earlier numbers, and I'm oversimplifying, I know, but it's just to get my message across. As I said, 80% of our revenue we were spending on, 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 on uh, government servant salaries and pensions, public servant salaries and pensions. So every year that was what we were spending. So we had 20% for everything else. By the time COVID struck, 74% of our revenue we were spending on interest payments on our debt. And that was not Chinese debt. While COVID was actually what we had borrowed in international markets, because now the 30 billion dollars of debt under treatment at the moment below i think 12 billion comes from international sovereign bonds we have issued in in places like new york because what happened was during the war nobody really lent to us we didn't have much commercial debt until 2009 we were basically we had uh debt sort of world bank debt db debt you know multilateral debt and bilateral debt sovereign debt 
it was after 2009, everybody came to lend to us when the war ended and we were actually getting ratings, our bonds were rated and we were all very proud to go into the market. And what we did with that money was the problem. Okay, we built some highways, we built some uh, ports, but by and large, what we did was we funded a very, very large oversized government. We funded state enterprises that were losing money. Our electricity company is a monopoly, uh, which uh, the cost of producing electricity per unit in Sri Lanka is between two and three times the cost of a unit for you in India. And that loss was being subsidized. Uh, the the uh, and, and and then uh, the the. Uh, for petroleum, we had a monopoly which was distributing petroleum before Indian oil came along for competition. And, and uh, the, the, it was a, that petroleum, we, do, we don't have any petroleum. I mean, oil, we basically were trading oil, but we were losing huge amounts of money trading oil in the selling oil in the local market. So the SOEs, we had a state airline, which we still have, Sri Lankan Airlines, losing a lot of money. So that is where a lot of it went. Yes, the Chinese debt is important and in the context of treating debt, we have a challenge because China does not conform to Bretton Woods standards and there is a discussion going on on that. Uh, but to say that it's a Chinese debt that created the crisis, I, I think if you look at the numbers, it doesn't show that. It, is, it was our, our mismanagement, the way we manage the economy. And again, I think uh, there, there, this... Uh, lack of uh, we were we were not willing to earn money before we were spending that, that was a problem and when we suddenly could borrow we just started to borrow to spend we have a very very uh, prevalent social safety net nearly half our population was on some kind of welfare or the other uh, we have we have uh, of course we provide free education free health now all this has to be deregulated we are proud of our free health system we are proud of our free education system but we can't afford to carry it this way. We have to allow private healthcare, more private private universities. What you, you have here, they, each time you talk about a private university in Sri Lanka, the kids from the state universities all start striking. Each time you talk about reforming the uh, medical system, the doctors begin to strike because they are used to basically a statist medical system, although we have private hospitals, it, it is, uh, it, it, it's in a, it still hasn't evolved enough. Uh, and and uh, when it, when it, uh, so therefore, I mean, the, the, the discussion really has to be, I think, on restructuring the state. And at the moment, the reforms have to focus on electricity. We have to create a competition. We have to allow private generation of electricity private distribution and transmission of electricity, like what you have in India. I mean, you have some good examples here to take, I think, on infrastructure. One sector we have successfully reformed, and that took a while too, is telecommunications. And very interestingly, I mean, I use this as an example. It didn't happen because politicians themselves said we are going to reform it. It's technology which did the trick, interesting, in the sense that in the 80s, uh, uh, the cellular phone first started to come out and there was uh, one company which came up with the idea of a mobile phone and they applied for a license and at that time there was a government monopoly as it is now the, 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 there was a government monopoly a government utility which was there which is a monopoly but they didn't realize that this uh, cellular phone can be a real disruptor they gave the license to the private guy to operate so they started with the mobile and 
over the next 20 years, the mobile sector took off and there were more and more investments in mobile, while the garment utility uh, remained somewhat of a monopoly on the land rights. Then that got privatized. Now we are going through another phase uh, in privatization. There. I mean, the, the government is thinking of selling that, that particular utility, although it, it is partially owned privately by a Malaysian company. They are planning to sell the balance of the shares. But the interesting thing was how technology did the disruption because uh, the, the government monopoly didn't see the mobile phone at the time in this is i'm talking of the late 80s uh, as a threat and they they somebody gave them a license and that guy started then others started to come in and now we have several mobile operators but uh, and there is competition and that's slowly the government became restaurant now sometimes i say that in electricity also we may have to wait for that moment when technology allows battery storage and people can start setting up their own private uh, power operations because otherwise i mean that's that's a long term dream really but what i'm saying is the, the technology sometimes also can disrupt and in the case of the, the in the case of reform i think uh, telecom technology the disruption helped and hopefully power we need to deregulate and the government is trying to do that otherwise again we will have to wait for technology to you know lead us there. because you are moving very fast in the power sector and one of the reasons why we are talking of integrating the two power grids also is that then we could create you know real competition in sri lanka we can actually try to uh, reform the uh, power sector there with this integration because our whole uh, our generation uh, capacity is 4,300 megawatts. In your case, NTPC alone, I think, has uh, something like 90,000 megawatts. I mean, so we are very small in proportion. So if we do integrate, and if we, we also have nearly 30,000 megawatts wind energy potential off the northwest coast of Sri Lanka. So if we can exploit that with Indian investment, and you have the power grid, it will also help to reform our power sector. That's That's what I think. Fair enough. Now, uh, maybe maybe we can look at some specific instances because somebody, you know, has again, a viewer has asked this question that and I was looking at the news because, you know, when what are the roadblocks in the ferry service that has been shut down for a while between India and Sri Lanka? Like, wh what are the roadblocks there? Like, what are the roadblocks from the Indian side? What are the roadblocks from the Sri Lankan side? Like, uh, maybe we can talk about that because I think that also would help a lot in many issues i agree with you totally the ferry service has to get moving quickly it has to get moving faster i mean the two prime ministers and the president and the prime minister your prime minister and our president in their joint statement uh, just a few months ago announced that the ferry services will be resumed and uh, the the infrastructure has to be set in place especially now there is talk of from kankasan today which is in northern Sri Lanka to Nagarpatnam, which is in Tamil Nadu. That is one possible, that is one link they are working on. But the real important link is between Rameshwaran and Thalemana. That's where we, we can have actually, and that's also where potentially a land bridge idea can come about. Uh, and, and there, you have to build the infrastructure on both sides. On the Sri Lankan side, there is a pier, which is, which I don't, from what all studies I have seen, will have to be either, will have to be rebuilt. Uh, on the Indian side, also fair work has to be done. 
uh, the general feeling uh, between uh, to do, talk to the two governments is that uh, the the Nagapatnam uh, to Kankasanthure ferry should be operational maybe in about three four months time i think that's what they're thinking of but that will be merely a passenger ferry i don't think it can go beyond a passenger ferry whereas taliban and rameshwaran which may take at least a couple of years to get the infrastructure developed based on the discussions i have seen and i'm hoping that the private sector can be involved more in this because now some of these ports can be private ports and that's how we should be looking at it uh, and and that I think both governments need to focus more on that. Yeah, this tendency to uh, the, the default position very often is the state. Although I know that that, that two president, the president and the prime minister, took a decision at their discussion that priority will be given to private sector investment. So that is part of the policy. And both leaders on our side and your side are very strong believers in that. So that is good. But then finally, this has to get done at the operational level. But uh, KK's uh, Rameshwaran has to be not only passengers, you have to also have vehicles so that you can have roll-on, roll-off provisions. The, the, the so not KK's Rameshwaran Taliban. KK's Rameshwaran, the Kankasanthuri Rameshwaran, I don't think it will be easy to do it that way. But this roll-on, roll-off is essential. And over time, uh, I think the Taliban Rameshwaran is what has to be developed. As of now, people are talking of that taking about two years. The quick one, uh, quick win they see is uh, Kankasanthure to uh, to, Nagapath, to Nagapatnam and that uh, uh, matter of months. So at least it's a start, but I don't think that's exactly what we need here, that we're just carrying off passengers back and forth. Yeah, we have to work on the other option. You know, I've only been asking you questions from an Indian perspective, but I think it's only fair that I let you also state what does the Sri Lankan perspective expect from India? Let's say, you know, it's only fair that you also get to state your point of view because this is not just about what India thinks Sri Lanka should do. And I and I do understand sometimes, you know, in the relationship, there is a... like. A, one of my very close close friends is married to a Sri Lankan. They live in Australia. And I always, you know, I meet so many Sri Lankans. They're like, you know, sometimes we get this big brother bully kind of a feeling. No, I'm being very open. And, and that's why I want to have this open conversation. So, so you know, a lot of times they say, no, Indians uh, also do this. I was like, okay, tell me, what does Sri Lanka expect? And then the answers never come. So now I, I'm asking you this. Like, what does Sri Lanka expect from India in this entire process? I, I told you what India expects now. So what are the Sri Lankan expectations? I think firstly, the Big Brother perspective, you cannot avoid that. This is an asymmetrical relationship in every way. I mean, we, we are 22 million population, you are 1.4 billion population, $80 billion economy, three and a half trillion economy. I mean, I gave you an idea of our power sector, what, 4,300 4, megawatts of power, which uh, probably one of your large generators for probably for a city would be that. Uh, if you look at oil consumption, we, I think, uh, consume 150,000 barrels of oil a day. Uh, you must be having, I don't know, maybe closer to 5 million, I don't know, maybe more. But uh, so we are we are sort of, there, there is no, no comparison. Uh, so uh, basically, even there is always that sense of insecurity, if you will, when you are dealing with a bigger, bigger country. I mean, if you are seated next to... Uh, U.S. and Mexico may be similar. I mean, Russia and 
neighbors, it will be similar with China, it will be the same. I mean, that's the reality. You have certain civilizational links, yes, but at the same time, you have a sense of uh, insecurity uh, because, I mean, clearly uh, the regional power calls the shots when it comes to the environment. That's a reality and that has to be understood. But I think if you look at the last couple of years, last year you helped us. And, and it was, I don't think Sri Lanka even expected it or believed it was such a, I mean, $4 billion in a year, no, at the time when nobody was willing to give us any money. Uh, and uh, it was given in a very flexible, we could not go to any international organization or bank, of course, no bank would lend us, but no international organization would have given us that. Your Reserve Bank backstopped our Asian Clearing Union payments well over for $2 billion. And that was, it was not even a loan. You just backstopped it and now we are negotiating to pay it back. Uh, so, and you provided a billion dollars for our, for, for oil and for essential items. Actually, one and a half billion dollars if you combine the oil credit as well. Uh, so, th this is what you have done so far to help to stabilize the economy. And, and probably those placards you are talking about at the cricket match, you would not have seen that if this money was not there. You would have seen bloodshed. I mean, the peaceful protests were that people actually had fuel to go to the cricket match, you know, because, they, I mean, they were protesting, but they had the fuel. So, I mean, it was that peaceful transition that took place. I mean, there was some violence, not that there was steady, but, but it would have been a complete bloodshed. Having complete touch. So, so that is what you have already done. Now I think we are talking of the growth phase. And then also I must say that your leadership, uh, your finance minister, your external affairs minister, your national security advisor, took the lead in talking to the World Bank and the IMF and uh, getting there. So because they were they were not that focused on Sri Lanka. Because these these people who went out there, Mr. Sitaraman went for the annual sessions of the World Bank and the IMF and openly said, you know, you must help Sri Lanka. Then when it came to the debt restructuring, the IMF had worked out their, their debt sustainability framework and they wanted countries to their creditors to buy into it. And nobody was buying in. It was India who wrote the first letter saying, yes, we will accept the debt sustainability framework. So that is the, the stabilization phase. Now the next phase, I think, is we need growth because our economy in the last two years have shrunk by 10%. By the end of this year, we would have, you know, 2022, 23 would have been a 10% shrink. You can imagine in human terms what damage that does. Uh, now we have to look at growth. And there are, I think, what the two the leaders agreed, integrating the two economies, starting with physical integration, looking at an oil pipeline between India and Sri Lanka to make Trincomalee into a energy hub, uh, looking at uh, the electricity connection. The road can be a future vision. I mean, obviously, this cannot happen overnight. Uh, then looking at uh, the, the what you mentioned, ferry services, aviation, air connectivity, because tourism is the big, the big thing for us. And now, uh, tourism, Indian tourism accounts for about 20% of tourists coming to Sri Lanka. So you are by far the highest. And so that will make a big difference. Uh, there is going to be a world-class casino in Sri Lanka by next year, which, which will also be an international standard casino. So maybe we'll see more uh, Indians coming for gaming as well. 
Uh, then, so that is the physical connectivity aspect. Then there is the economic integration aspect. There the two leaders have agreed to open out on the, we have a free trade agreement, but to do, to take it to the next level. So that has been agreed in principle, but of course it has to be implemented. Uh, then the rupee payments to try to uh, and make it easier so that uh, it will help tourism, it will help trade. Lastly, investment. We need investment and uh, the, the, with, especially with the privatization or private sector opportunities coming up. I mean, Anani Ports is one investor who has invested now, they invested at the height of the crisis last year. Uh, then uh, you have ITC, which I who have built a $500 million hotel, which will be completed, I think, by the end of the year, hotel home apartment block. It is, it's the main ITC hotel outside uh, India. It, it's a it's a star class, I mean, five, six star, seven star, star, however you want to call it, hotel. So more investment from India would also be key. I mean, those are the three and to how to facilitate that. Now, I think the focus is there with Delhi for the last one and a half years, you have given us a lot of focus. But sustained focus is what we would need, I think, because you have so many distractions now. And there is a bandwidth issue, you know, which is clearly there. I mean, every, every body is wooing India. So it, within that, I mean, we are happy for the attention we got fortunately last year when we hit the crisis. Uh, but now I think in the, 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 uh, the growth phase, we need that support. So, I mean, you asked me what would we like to see. It is that more, more focus, more attention. I, I think I don't know. I mean, this, these are my views and my viewers' views. Again, everything that comes out of my mouth is, you know, I I want to clarify it again and again. Is not the government view. Is that I think you know things like UPI in Sri Lanka. I think that would make life a lot easier and help Indian tourists in Sri Lanka. Also, will give you a technology platform. Like I, I'm sure you have been in India now. You have seen how how brilliant UPI functions. I think if Sri Lanka could take up to UPI, where Indians can travel there, even make payments in Indian rupees stuff like that you know have more free capital movement and um, i guess eventually i don't know maybe get to buy land in both the countries i don't know if if that will ever be a possibility or not but i think that that should be the the future of of uh, for sri lanka because i think the only benefit for sri lanka is and people i think you know that point we made in the beginning of a common civilizational narrative i think people don't realize the difference between you know, skin deep relations and soul deep relations. What Sri Lanka and India have and what the subcontinent has is a soul deep relationship. So even in the case of Nepal, in many ways, why, why does India constantly, you know, do what it does is because the growing sentiment in India, like when I meet an average Indian, they don't have hostility to Sri Lanka. They just think Sri Lanka, you know, there are our brothers and sisters, there are family. Yes, they are independent nation. They should be an independent nation. They should have their sovereignty. All of that is a given. But they are still, in, in many ways, if you meet an average Indian, I'm not talking about a geopolitical expert or something, just the average Indian, they would in fact have a very sympathetic view to Sri Lanka. So I actually do hope that we take these tripods. I think, I don't know what your view is, but I think UPI should be made available to Sri Lankans in the long run. I think it would really help them. No, I think we have now, at that's on the cross-border level, we have we have now established that, and uh, hopefully the technical issues will be resolved. So that uh, because during uh, our president's visit, there was an agreement signed uh, between the two sides on that, so that uh, you can the payment can be done. Uh, 
and then when it comes to uh, personal identity in fact the, we are we have uh, now we are planning to implement a platform based on the aadhar card in sri lanka uh, in india is supporting us on that uh, that uh, there they, 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 is a grant that your government has provided us with to to implement it and and we uh, hopefully that will also get started i mean the model we are using aadhar as the model and then that would also that will be another part, part of the technology collaboration uh, that we are entering into that that was that that is now in place actually that in the sense it's under implementation uh, but the payment uh, gateway side i think there, there will be uh, some coordination now after this uh, agreement was signed and hopefully platforms like rupay for example can be used in sri lanka we hope once the, the technical aspects are sorted out i think on the digital side there is a lot that we can work together on there is no question about it in fact i've been we are even uh, interestingly talking of uh, something on the space economy side i was invited by isro to a their meeting g20 meeting in uh, meghalaya some months back and after that uh, we are talking of a mou on uh, to cooperate on the space economy because as you know i don't know with you Arthur C. Clarke was lived in Sri Lanka. He, yeah. In the Clarke Belt, as you know, is named after him. That's where the geostationary satellites are based. And he believes strongly that uh, that uh, Sri Lanka was ideally placed for launching of satellites because of the, the location. In fact, one of his science fiction books, uh, The uh, Fountains of Paradise, talks of this elevator going up 35,000 kilometers. You, know, you can go up uh, uh, to to uh, where the satellites will uh, our station uh, so he uh, that that uh, the the space economy cooperation is another interesting area i mean it, it's not as outrageous as it sounds i think uh, especially now with private investment going into space even in india as you know india is encouraging public private partnerships in space uh, we have been you know that's another sector we can cooperate the space and the sea both because in the oceans also we can do a lot of yep i i agree so what someone has asked sir um, can can uh, sir provide a rough estimate as to when elections in sri lanka will be held uh, and uh, is there any um, eventual uh, road map to those amendments where the const- uh, in the constitution where the the power will be given to the state so so when 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 do you think it is going to happen the next election as that is on the cards at the moment would be the presidential election sometime after august next year that is 2023 august that is the election that has to happen sometime soon after or between august september october somewhere there constitutionally that is what is there the other elections you are talking of the provincial elections i think the parliament has to find a consensus on holding those elections it is really a, a very much stuck in gridlock in parliament uh, and uh, when when those elections will be held i can't predict because it is a, it is a, up to parliament to make the necessary amendments to the legislation that they are they have this has been going on for a number of years uh, but the the uh, presidential elections as of now are the first elections that are due that 
least if we are looking at it constitutionally. Then uh, the parliamentary elections will be a year after that. Of course, the president is a, can dissolve parliament at any point. He, he's, he can do that if he so wishes. I, that's, that's, I can't obviously speak for him on that, but it is within his right to dissolve. But uh, this current parliament's term will go one year beyond the president's term. So president is, president's term will end uh, towards the latter half of 2023. And then uh, one year after that is parliament, the parliamentary election, if you stick to this arrangement. Of course, Sri Lanka being Sri Lanka, and I guess there's a lot of speculation, will the constitution be amended to bring the presidential elections forward? And there's a lot of debate. I mean, the chattering classes in Sri Lanka are always busy, and political columnists are very busy with that. And democracies, especially in our part of the world, you know that's how it works. Uh, but as of now, this is what is there. So, uh, you know, I I started on a lighter note on cricket, but now is a serious question for cricket. Like I said, you cannot avoid cricket with me. I will ask you cricketing questions. But one of, uh, you know, the joys for me as a cricket fan was to see the rise of the Sri Lankan cricket team in the 90s when, you know, Arjuna Ranatunga was the captain. And then later on, we had this, I call it the golden period of Sri Lankan cricket was actually post Ranatunga. Under Myla Jayavardhana, when when you had Kumar Sangakara, Jayavardhana, Dilshan, and many other players, you know, great players of Sri Lankan cricket. But the one constant thing, whether it's from the time before Arjuna Ranatunga to the current team, every single big player of Sri Lanka has accused the Sri Lankan cricket board of being completely dominated by politicians and the political class. I I, I like I remember reading articles in 2012. As of now, I know there was the ICC three-member team that had just visited Sri Lanka to do an uh, uh, do a report. Now, I'll I'll give you the Indian perspective. So people might think, oh, he's only putting Sri Lanka on the dock. No. So the one good thing that I admire in India is finally, after Jagmohan Dalmia, we realize leave sports alone. At least cricket was left alone because other sports are not left alone in India. Like I said, I'm not a government guy, so I can bash my own people and my own government. I don't care, right? Now, the bane of India is, other than cricket, where politicians are interfering in everything, those sports suffer. Now, why does Sri Lanka not take the lessons from BCCI and let's say, look how much BCCI has grown why can't we do it? Like, why is there this constant criticism of Sri Lankan politicians interfering in Sri Lankan cricket? Firstly, I am not as cricket obsessed probably as you are. Uh, but uh, all, all I see is, yes, I mean, Sri Lanka is a very politicized society. I can't, I mean, uh, in every aspect, we are politicized. Uh, and, and that is unfortunate. It's not only cricket, every sport. Uh, and in a way, despite the politics, our sportsmen have done well. I mean, our cricketers have done well. Arjuna Ranatunga himself is a politician now, but he comes from a political yeah. family. But he was a great leader. I mean, he, was, he gave leadership to our cricket. He's a, I think he gave us the self-confidence and the courage to break through into the leagues I mean, that we have entered now. Uh, so, I mean, I see this as part of our culture. In my own politics, I have tried to always talk against, against, against libertarianism. You know, that, that's why I feel we need a spell of libertarianism in Sri Lanka, where you just leave people alone. And I am fully busy on that. And in my, my own personal philosophy is that my political philosophy has been that. 
but sadly that's what we are government is all intrusive for one argument you can have a reason you can have in this context maybe uh, is that uh, we fought a war for so long that the state became all powerful and all important and we still haven't come out of that but having to be fair and here in the context of cricket i must be fair it is also a politician who led the way when it came to getting us icc status who was one of our, he was assassinated by the LTT, but he was the first, uh, he was the person who took the lead as the head of the cricket board, supported by several business people who got us into the ICC. So, so in some ways, I mean, if you ask somebody in that context, if his leadership was not available at the time, would we have really been able to get into international cricket? I don't know. So politicians have done some good and maybe more bad, I don't know. So, but why is politics so in intrusive in Sri Lanka? Why is government so intrusive? I'm fully with you on that. I, I mean, I hope uh, we can have a little a dose of that libertarianism that you were talking of in the beginning. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a fair thing. Look, uh, if you don't follow the sport, like for me, my biggest bane has been a politician's ruining sport in general in India. BCCI being the exception, not the norm. BCCI is not the norm in India. I think politicians have ruined so many things in India. Like I said, I'm, I'm a free guy. I can I can criticize my politicians on my podcast, even talking to a representative from another country. I have that freedom and I have maintained that freedom uh, personally, it, it just hurts me when I, you know, whether it's Kumar Sangakara's speech uh, in 2020, whether it's Arjuna Ranatunga and his criticism in 2012. I know he's politically, so people can criticize him as like, you yourself are a politician now. Uh, Sanat Jaisuria has made statements and uh, many others have made statements. Actually, I, I think the only person who has avoided it is the greatest Sri Lankan cricketer ever, Mutaya Murlidharan. I think he's never gotten into all of this. He just stays out of all of this. I don't know why Murli has avoided it, but it's just something that's sad. But I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on a positive note. In fact, one of the things I, you know, I regret not doing in my life is visiting Sri Lanka personally. Yeah, one of my dreams. Yes. I, I, I want to do the entire Ramayana tour. One of my closest friends who's a doctor in Mumbai, you know, he visited Sri Lanka and he told me how beautiful it was, how well, uh, how well taken, uh, you know, how, how good care you guys have taken of all the Ramayana sites and many other sites in Sri Lanka. So, you know, I, I, I wish one day my wife and I, you know, uh, you know, and the entire family goes and visits Sri Lanka. But before we wrap it up, I want to give you the last words. So please take it over. Firstly, Ushul, I want to thank you for this opportunity because yeah, I watched your podcast and they're always thoughtful. And today, you also, your questions were obviously, I mean, you wanted to get something out, but you so thoughtful and so considerate also. Uh, I, I think the message I have really is the fact that India and Sri Lanka have more in common than we realize. And then to me, during my tenure here, what I've tried to do is that the people-to-people -people relationship is what will really make the difference. It is maybe conversations like this. I mean, diplomats and leaders can talk to each other, but I feel, again, maybe it's part of my libertarian thinking, is that people-to-people, -people, once people get to know each other, everything becomes irrelevant. Irre 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 
so everything else becomes irrelevant. So tourism is one way. Pilgrimages, as you are suggesting, Ramayana trail from that side to here, Bodhisam, Buddhist trail from here. We have a lot of Buddhist pilgrims who come out. We have to broaden that circuit at the moment. It is restricted to the main sites of Buddha, but we should be looking at Odisha and also Sanchi and sites like that. But I think if we can encourage more people to people exchanges, and uh, I feel, for example, if we can encourage uh, school children to visit India and Indian school children to visit Sri Lanka more, I, I think we will see a, see a big difference because somebody coming from the south of Sri Lanka turns up in Kerala, they will not know the difference. Okay, the language is different maybe, but they, they wouldn't even recognize that they have left Sri Lanka. Uh, so, I mean, my message is, I think India, I mean, sometimes Indians feel, see Sri Lanka as remote. Uh, we are not that remote. And, and that, that's what, I mean, I've been trying to explain, I think, during my period. And uh, I also must thank the warmth of India personally to me. And I, I, I want to end maybe on that note, uh, when at the height of the crisis, uh, when we were having I mean, last year when things were really falling apart and India was helping us. I made a visit to Tamil Nadu on my way back to Colombo and I met with the chief minister there. But uh, I, at that time I asked my consul general in, in or deputy high commissioner in Chennai to take me to a place where I wanted to eat Andhra food on a sort of a normal place, not a, not a very expensive place. I just wanted where ordinary folk go. So we went there and after eating, I came out of the uh, this restaurant and my car was parked with a flag on the car and uh, there was an elderly gentleman standing by the car when I came. And he came up to me and just held my hand with both his hands and he said, don't worry, it will be all right. Don't worry, it will be all, all right. He was an ordinary man who uh, who said this and and that is the warmth from Tamil Nadu mind you I mean people think uh, you know in Sri Lanka sometimes there is a tendency to demonize Tamil Nadu there was but during the crisis Tamil Nadu also helped us uh, significantly but to me you know that kind of memory of the warmth and of the Indian people will will be with me and I think we need to create that link so the ferry services the airline connections, the tourism, the pilgrimages. I think that's that's where we and, and then I think everything else will settle down once we get to know each other. And, and people like you doing what you are doing now also, you know, giving us the opportunity to talk like this. Uh, because I find in India there is a bandwidth issue. I mean Sri Lanka is quite low down on the agenda. It's understandable. Although I mean we are happy we got the attention we did. So the fact that you have also chosen to select me on this occasion, I appreciate that. Anyway, thank you, and I hope uh, to see you in Sri Lanka soon. Please yeah, yeah, I, I really, I, I will take you up on that offer, sir, uh, because uh, don't be surprised that I, I'm I'm with you eating breakfast in Colombo one of these days because yeah. I really want to visit Sri Lanka. Look forward to it. Thank you again, Kushar. Thank you. All right. Thanks for coming, sir. So, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up once again. Like I said, uh, 
I and I mean this. I have always said this. When it comes to the subcontinent, the relations in the subcontinent exceptions apply uh, are soul deep. This is this is a civilizational continuity, which is why, in fact, I I always wanted to discuss. And you know, when I uh, you know when the good people from uh, from the High Commission reached out to me and said, uh, "Would you want to have a conversation?" I immediately said yes. Is because I was looking out how to reach out. I did not know, so I was glad to to speak with. Um, Mininderji, and uh, I look forward to having many more conversations. This platform, I did not create this platform just for India or India-centric issues. You know, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Sri Lanka, whether it's Bangladesh, whether it's other places. You know, in our neighborhood, we should talk about all of them. And if you can go, go visit Sri Lanka. It's a beautiful country. I'll also visit. Don't worry. And if you can, please support the Charvak podcast. You know the drill. You can become a member. You can, you know, leave a rating if you are an audio listener. or sub you know just like the video and subscribe to the channel i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye